This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't worry, I've not gone to work in number 10. Coming up on today's episode of the podcast, what is Thatcherism? Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak say they are Thatcherite tax cutters while they put up tax. Keir Starmer mocks Boris Johnson over Margaret Thatcher. We'll ask, what is Thatcherism? What was it in the 90s? And what it does it mean in 2022? We'll hear from Norman Lamont, who was a minister from, under Margaret Thatcher. John Whittingdale was her political secretary. And we'll also find out from the Institute of Economic Affairs what Thatcherite policy really looks like in the 21st century. That's coming up in our big thing. First, as ever, we kick off with the Economist panel. On a Monday, it is Libby Rachie, but no Libby Burris this week. So instead, it's Rachie Rachie. From the Times, it's Rachel Sylvester. And from the New Statesman, it's Rachel Cunliffe. So let's talk about, I want to talk about exams, uh, because uh, there's uh, lots of new information coming out about what's going to happen in exams this year. Nadim Zahari, the Education Secretary, says the grading will be more generous than normal in A-levels and GCSEs this year. Yesterday, we heard about, in the Sunday Times, dozens of private schools doubling the proportion of A-stars they handed out to A-level pupils, uh, gaming the system, as it were. Um, we'll start with you, Ray Sylvester, because you've been chairing the Times' Education uh, Commission. What do you make of the fact that, what, for the third year running now, exams will not be normal? I know, and there are just no good options, are there? Because you could think about how much learning the children have lost and also different amounts of lessons have been missed by different children so it's very hard to see how you can make it really really fair uh, and there's such as so much evidence that disadvantaged children have lost out more than the kind of wealthier children so that's one thing one dimension to the whole thing but then you've got this sort of massive um, discrepancy in the teacher awarded grades that we've seen between private and state schools which is in itself shocking so there are no good options and the government's tried to come up with this um sort of fudged version if you like where they'll give a bit more information to students about what they're going to be tested on and they'll be slightly more generous in the grading but i think it does raise a question really in a much broader way how how should we be assessing children what is the fairest way are there new technologies that can help to um, make it fair and sort of more fairer continuous assessment uh, should there be more um, coursework involved so that it's not all down to one or two exams 
exams. Um, and we've been hearing so much evidence uh, as the Education Commission that businesses are in increasingly disillusioned with the exam system. You know, um, more than three quarters of them now set their own uh, assessment tests, their online tests when they're recruiting because they don't trust A-levels or GCSEs. So the whole thing is a mess, really. It is a mess. Is there any way through this, uh, Rachel? Do you think, other than, I mean, essentially, Rachel Cunliffe, is that <laughs> the, the, essentially, essentially the policy just seems to be just muddled through or get through this year? There doesn't seem to be a lot of thought being put into the long term uh, idea. You know, I think last week there was the suggestion, I think Lord Young, former um, uh, Thatcher uh, minister, was talking about, you know, maybe we should scrap exams altogether. They're not a good idea. Um, what do you think? Well, I think the problem with that, the scrapping exams altogether, is that we've had two years of doing something similar to that and allowing teachers to assign grades. And what we found is that the disadvantaged pupils are penalised even more than they are under an exam system. And the, the best, the top schools, the independent schools, uh, enjoy huge amounts of, of grade inflation, which is, by the way, how the system was designed last year. It's not like any schools broke any rules. Teachers and schools were allowed to set kind of grades as long as they gave some kind of evidence. And if you've got a school where you think most people, well, maybe if they worked hard, they could have got an A-star grade, you're going to give them all A-star grades. And the fact that perhaps in, in, in normal circumstances, they would have done exams and, and not got those grades it, it isn't relevant. Schools were asked to say what grades their, their pupils could have got. Uh, and so now we're seeing that, that that grade inflation as the result. And um, I actually tentatively, and I don't speak in defence of this government very often, but I do think that what uh, the Education Secretary is trying to do at the moment probably is the the fairest out of a whole load of not very good options, which is keep exams, give pupils a chance to show what they can do, but make it easier for them to know what's on the papers because many of them will have missed huge amounts of, of, of schooling. And they have had basically three years of disrupted education. So a little bit of a guidance towards this is what we might ask you. This is the stuff that maybe if you didn't manage to cover it, like, don't worry about it. Focus your resources here. I can kind of see what they're doing there or, or, or what they're trying to do. But it has been horrifically unfair. And unfortunately, one of the reasons it has been horrifically unfair is that the previous education secretary didn't really seem to care about school pupils that much at all. He was he was much more interested in telling students at Oxbridge colleges that they should or shouldn't have a picture of the Queen up in their common rooms than he was actually getting the technology to the students, the, the school pupils who, who needed it most and thinking about these issues earlier. That's an interesting point, actually, Rachel. During the point that you've been doing the uh, Education Commission, the, the, have you noticed a shift from the Williamson era to the Zahawi one? Definitely. I think there's a real um, willingness to... Um, a sort of open-mindedness now with Nadim Zahawi and a sort of real focus on evidence on um I, I think rachel's absolutely right gavin williamson was much more interested in playing politics nadim zahawi is keen on delivery he wants to make a difference he prides himself in being the vaccine minister who delivered the vaccine and he now wants to do something similar with schools and i think he's more open-minded to reform he's more he's more modern he's an entrepreneur by background so he has a sense of how technology might be able to help um, schools really transform the way they teach. So I think there has been a definite shift and also a, a shift in 
uh, focus, so a shift in attention that, um, as Rachel says, is much less on, you know, culture wars in universities and more on day to day. It was interesting that last week he announced that they were scrapping that rule on um, banning mobile phones. And we've had no more talk on bring back classics. There's definitely the sort of knee jerk um, you know, headline grabbing populist announcements have gone, and there's a bit more seriousness there. I think. Um, and, and Rachel, do you think that this might be a sign of you know this might be a tight, like she was saying, does um, the, the, the corner of the government, which is sort of getting us out together, actually Zahawi is a serious guy who's like thinking about this stuff, realizes it's not ideal, and maybe we could do with a bit of that being spread around the government more generally. Well, it's very refreshing, isn't it? New ministers coming into posts, actually spending time working out how their briefs work and and what the issues are, listening to the people who are going to be affected by their decisions uh, and then making decisions based on, I mean, as we said, there's no perfect option, but making decisions based on the information that they have from a a range of sources. It's it's quite refreshing. I wonder if it's going to catch on, Uh, maybe in in Downing Street, but uh, (laughs) we haven't seen much of that recently. On the subject of which, what do you make of the uh, reshuffling that's going on in Downing Street, Rachel Sylvester? Um, I mean, Steve Barclay seems like a decent guy. You know, I know him a little bit. He's been around a while. He's, you know, but three jobs at once uh, seems like quite, quite the task. Well, exactly. And especially when the whole reason this appointment seems to have been made is in response to Sue Gray's concerns about lack of clarity and accountability and lack of sort of grip in Downing Street. It's hard to see how having somebody who's both a cabinet minister, chief of staff, um, you know, all these things, multifaceted roles that he's going to have to try and do. It's hard to see how that is really going to solve the problems that the um, new role is meant to solve. And ultimately, the problem is the culture of Downing Street is set by the prime minister. So unless you change the prime minister, you're not really going to sort out the cultural problems um, that exist because Boris Johnson likes to operate. He likes to create chaos around him because that's how he has more power, as he as he memorably said, according to Dominic Cummings. Um, you know that if there's if there's enough confusion and chaos, then everyone has to look to him. So he likes to set set up these rival power bases and camps in number 10 so that in the end everyone else is weaker and he's stronger in his view although ultimately it ends up undermining him and there's been lots of speculation Rachel Cudliffe about um the role not just of Stephen Barkley and Gita Howie but also of Carrie Johnson what have you made of the the criticism of her and her her role in all of this Oh, I'm so torn on this because she's she's not elected. She's not even like the first lady in the US who gets a, an office and a set of causes and and, and all of that. Uh, and and if you if you read these reports about how she was behind the bid to save the pets in Afghanistan, that meant that people didn't get out of it, and that she had a, a say in various appointments. And you you do think, okay, no no leader's partner is is meant to have those kind of those kind of powers uh, and the people who just say it's sexist to criticize you at all well no it's not sexist to criticize somebody who is using power that they were never intended to have and, and have no right to that said there is a tendency on the pro boris wing to say it's all her fault for everything he is just a really decent stand-up guy but he's been manipulated by this evil woman who pushes him into positions that he doesn't want to be in she didn't look after him when he was ill and she was pregnant uh and and she's not a she's not a good wife who just who um 
you know, sort of calms and, and, and soothes and tempers her husband, which is what we all know a wife ought to be. And I'm like, come on, it's 2022. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't think that she has acted entirely without any anything that we could criticise for at all. But he's the prime minister, she's not. If he can't handle making his own decisions, maybe he shouldn't have that job. Well, yeah, that I suppose it is possible to think that uh, she is much more political than previous um, uh, political spouses. Uh, but also, it's Boris Johnson's job to tell her to butt out if necessary, because that's he's in charge. Ultimately, the criticism is is of is of him, Rachel. Totally, I really agree with Rachel. Actually, so obviously, she's the first political spouse who had a career in politics herself as director of communications for the Conservative Party, special advisor, and so on. So she's got her own network. She's got her own opinions, and fair enough. Why shouldn't she have her own opinions? But ultimately, it's his call who he appoints, um, and it's his call if he fast tracks animals out of Afghanistan ahead of people. That is his decision. He's the only person as prime minister who can do that Uh, and there's a lot of misogyny in the language around you know Lady Macbeth one Tory MP said to me we've got a geisha running the show in Downing Street you know all that stuff about princess nut nuts Um, and particularly this as Rachel says this idea that somehow the wife is supposed to keep the um, husband in check and make sure the prime minister's all got a grip on everything well you know he's a grown man he can keep himself in check frankly but the only thing I think is that it isn't sexist to criticise some of the things that she has done so particularly the culture around the parties in Downing Street and the kind of laxity with the rules with giving friends you know the code to the Downing Street flat and so on I think um, she has she's complicit in that sort of rule-breaking culture that grew up in Downing Street over the pandemic where there was this sense that it was one rule for them and another rule for the rest of us a sort of sense of entitlement so she and Boris Johnson together created it you know she was the one carrying the cake that ambushed him um (laughs) famously so it's you know I think you it's you can't she can't be completely um exempted from blame on that front but I I think it's absolutely no reason why she shouldn't have her own opinions have her own views um have her own political contacts it's up to the prime minister though to make sure that ultimately he's the one who takes the decisions exactly right and and yet just the fact that a lot of the criticism of her is being led by dominic cummings uh, that he's complaining that she's unelected interfering and nut nuts uh, from him is uh a certain <laughs> amount of the popcorn in the kettle black i think possibly um, just be, uh, just because several people have uh, messaged in about um uh carrie johnson's spokesman uh, and who pays for it? My understanding is it's paid by the Conservative Party. She does have a special advisor uh, who works for her, uh, who issues the statements saying she doesn't have a voice. Uh, but that's paid for by the Conservative Party, not by the taxpayer. So there we are. Rachel Cunley from the New Statesman and Rachel Sylvester from The Times. Then, of course, you can read The Times online every day. If you get yourself a subscription, just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, what is Thatcherism? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Everybody seems to love Margaret Thatcher right now. At least they're talking about her. Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak claim they are low-tax, low-spending Thatcherites while putting up tax and promising to spend more and more. So what we thought we would do today is take a look at what Thatcherism really means. Margaret Thatcher and Thatcherism still hangs over the Conservative Party and dominates almost all ideological debates. But what does it really mean? Here is the Iron Lady herself defining Thatcherism in a pre-election interview with Sir Robin Day on BBC's Panorama in 1987. You have stamped your image on the Tory party like no other leader ever has before. We never heard of Macmillanism. We never heard of Heathism. We never heard of Churchillism. We now hear of Thatcherism. What is it? What is it for the help of the undecided? What is it? Sir Robin is not a name that has... I created, uh, in the sense of calling it an an ism, let me tell you what it stands for. It stands for sound finance and government running the affairs of the nation in a sound financial way. It It stands for honest money, not inflation. It stands for living within your means. It stands for incentives, because we know full well that the growth, the economic strength of a nation comes from the efforts of its people, and its people need incentives to work as hard as they possibly can. All of that has produced economic growth. It stands for something else. It stands for the wider and wider spread of ownership of property, of houses, of shares, of savings. It stands for being strong in defence, a reliable ally and a trusted friend. People have called those things Thatcherism. They are, in fact, fundamental common sense and having faith in the enterprise and abilities of the people. It was my task to try to release those. They were always there. They've always been there in the British people, but they couldn't flourish under socialism. Can you They've now me? been released. That's can all that Thatcherism is. You... That's Margaret Thatcher speaking to Sir Robin Day on Panorama in 1987, insisting that Thatcherism is just fundamental common sense. Well, in an article for the Sunday Times last week, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak insisted they were low-tax Thatcherites. But Rishi Sunak has tried to avoid any discussion of Thatcherism. His justification for raising taxes does sound quite familiar, though, to her definition. Right now, the NHS is confronted with unprecedented backlogs. I think that's an unacceptable situation. We want to address that uh, and at the same time do the thing that governments have not done for years, and that's reform social care, and the Prime Minister deserves enormous credit for tackling that challenge. 
You can't take on a big challenge like that without funding it properly and sustainably. And that's what this new levy does. Mm. It is a new levy and people should feel reassured that every penny that they pay is going direct to the thing that they care most about, which is the NHS. I'm also a Chancellor that had to grapple with, hopefully once in a century pandemic, the biggest economic shock in 300 years, borrowing that skyrocketed to the levels that we haven't seen since World War II. Mm. And and I have to take the world as, as it is, not as I would like it to be. But what we are now on is a path to rebuild the economy after coronavirus. We're getting our borrowing and debt down back to responsible levels. We've already started cutting taxes, and that's very much my ambition and goal over the rest of this parliament. Yeah, although not many, uh, not all Conservative MPs necessarily agree. Some of them think the government's gone quite the other way, behaving like socialists. This was the Conservative backbencher Peter Bone in the Commons last week. Conservatives believe in holding taxes down and putting more money in the people's pockets and so they can decide how to spend it. Socialists believe in raising taxes and then choosing to give it back in the form of discounts and rebates to selected people the government think need it. Could the Chancellor tell me his approach in increasing national insurance contributions and then handing money back to different people through uh, rebates and discounts. Is that a conservative approach or a socialist approach? Wowzers. So what does Thatcherism really mean in 2022? We're going to speak to some of the people who knew the Iron Lady best. In a moment, we'll hear from Matthew Paris. This is her correspondent secretary, later Conservative MP, now, of course, Times columnist, and John Whittingdale, who was her political secretary. But first, earlier I caught up with Lord Lamont, Norman Lamont, was a minister throughout Thatcher's premiership, rising to chief secretary to the Treasury in her final term in office before becoming chancellor under John Major. And I began by asking him how he would define Thatcherism. I think one has to be careful about using the word Thatcherism because I think it is something that grew incrementally. Mrs Thatcher in her last years occasionally used the word herself, but she would never have done so uh, earlier on when she was prime minister. By Thatcherism, I would think of her philosophy being a strong emphasis on freedom, on the individual, individual responsibility, hard work, thrift, but all within the rule of law and free enterprise. But I think this became clear as time went on. Mrs. Thatcher started off very cautiously, but became bolder and there were specific problems to solve. But I think at the beginning she was much more cautious than at the end. Do you think that's possibly true of all all prime ministers and all prime ministerial ideologies, that they evolve over time and actually... You know, boldness comes with the security of being in office for a bit longer? Yes, although in fairness to Mrs Thatcher, she was, to my certain knowledge, always conscious that she could lose an election. She wasn't that confident she was always going to win. But I think you know, as she had one success and then another success, she was tremendously emboldened, I think, both by the Falklands and the miners' strike. But you know, these were responses that she gave, and she probably thought she had little alternative to very specific problems and very specific crises. OK, and on the subject of tax, because there's been lots of talk of that in, in recent weeks, uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak saying they are Thatcherites and they would like to cut taxes while also putting up taxes. Actually, if you look at the history of what happened to tax 
uh, during the you know you were in the Treasury as a minister for large parts of it, but during the course of Margaret Thatcher's uh, time in office, actually taxes were put up as uh, as well as cut, and sometimes at the same time. Yes, that's absolutely right. Mrs Thatcher did always say that curbing the deficit came before cutting taxes, and deficits were merely. Uh, delayed tax increases, and that the first priority always had to be sound finance. So I think she would have had a lot of sympathy with Rishi Sunak uh, putting up taxes. She might have uh, wondered whether expenditure could have been cut, because she would always want to look at that. But I think in the last analysis, she would have accepted that when you'd had a a once-in-a-generation event, a once-in-50-years event, Uh, the consequences of that left a horrendous deficit and that had to be the first priority. I think she would have understood that, but she would have wanted to emphasise the aim of getting taxes down in the longer term. You you mentioned that she occasionally, towards the end of uh, her time in office, sort of used the the phrase Thatcherism herself. Did did she do that sort of directly to you or is this more publicly? Did she ever sort of spell out around the cabinet table this is thatcherism and you're you're all signed up to it this is this is the mission or was it not as explicit as that no she would never have said anything like that I, when i said she used the word i was just thinking of one occasion where i think she read i sorry where i think i read that she had simply said i think she said there's no such thing as majorism and then my implication was implying there was such a thing as thatcherism and um, when you then became Chancellor, having been in the uh, Treasury as Chief Secretary of the Treasury, you then become Chancellor in the sort of post-Thatcher era. What was your approach then? I mean, is, is Thatcherism just actually a strain of conservatism that, that lots of people who've been in politics for a long time sign up to? What was your approach? Was it to continue Thatcherism? I mean, majorism is not something that gets talked about very often. Were you just pursuing Lamontism? I wanted to follow essentially the same sorts of policies that she would have uh, followed. That was uh, what I wanted to do. But of course, circumstances uh, dictate not always what you want to do, but what you have to do. And I found myself facing a very, very large uh, deficit as a result of the recession. And I too had to put up taxes. And they were as big an increase as those that are being talked about today. But that had to happen. What I did was to stage them over time so that the effect was rather gradual. But essentially, I was doing very much the same as being done now, but trying to ensure that the recovery continued. And what have you made, and this is more to do with the politics, I suppose, than the economics, but um, the messages we get now that, yes, we're putting up national insurance now in the hope of cutting taxes later, because non-economic minds might just think we'll just leave it alone then uh, and uh, don't put them up and you know in the end it'll all work out in the wash is there a risk of trying to sort of be a bit too clever that you put up taxes now to show that you're taking difficult decisions but actually then with, a, with an eye on an election when you can cut taxes again well national insurance is a tax don't let anyone pretend otherwise but i don't think the chancellor or the prime minister are saying put up national insurance in order to cut taxes. They're saying we're having to put up taxes now, but some of the costs of the pandemic and of the slowing down of the economy during the pandemic will disappear over time. 
And we may be in a position where the public finances, which are gradually coming back to normality, will enable us to reduce taxes at a future date. I think that's what they're saying. Just finally, I wondered whether you reflected on over the years, you know, wrapping yourself in Thatcherism has been in and out of vogue. Um, you know, at various times, people have, you know, different Tory leaders have tried to, you know, say they were the heirs to Thatcher and then they were doing their own thing and there was such a thing as society, whatever it might be. Are we entering a period where she is de rigueur in Tory, Tory circles, do you think? Well, I, I think, in a sense, Mrs. Thatcher is de rigueur. I think she's left a permanent imprint on the Conservative Party. But Mrs. Thatcher was in many ways not a typical conservative. She had aspects of 19th century liberalism, which she merged with some traditional conservative views. But I think this altered the nature of conservatism. But she was such a dominant figure that all political leaders today in the Conservative Party want to be associated with her and pray and aid her name. But, you know, I think a lot of the criticism of what Mr. Sunak is, in my opinion, inevitably and rightly done, you know, is really just people wanting to oppose something that they know will be unpopular. And therefore, um, they say Mrs. Thatcher would never have done this. But I think she would have actually done it. She didn't read the newspapers. She read a summary of them. And she certainly didn't read it last thing at night, as some politicians are in inclined to do. And she didn't pay a lot of attention to opinion polls. I'm not saying she never looked at an opinion poll, but she wasn't obsessed by them. She wasn't obsessed by short-term popularity. But she knew, knew when people were getting upset, when public opinion didn't like this or that. She also was a person very much in tune with the average citizen's housekeeping. She knew how much a pint of milk or a loaf of bread cost. She didn't need someone to tell her that. Um, and, and looking looking ahead to the future, there's obviously lots of speculation about what the future might hold for the Conservative Party. We've seen Liz Truss in particular apparently modelling herself quite a lot on Margaret Thatcher to the point of even posing for photos in a tank. Um, who do you think is the heir to Margaret Thatcher? Is it Boris Johnson? Is it Rishi Sunak? Is it Liz Truss? <laughs> well, I'm not going to say who's the most uh, Thatcherite. Um, and as I say, policies and philosophy will adjust to different circumstances uh, and you know Thatcherism will take on new forms and new guises but I can't really say who is the most Thatcherite of us all. That was uh, Norman Lamont, uh, Lord Lamont, discussing what is Thatcherism. I caught up with him uh, a little earlier. We've still got John Whittingdale who was of course uh, Margaret Thatcher's political secretary before becoming an MP and then a cabinet minister too. Morning John. Good morning. What for you is the definition of Thatcherism? Well, um, I mean, you, you um, quoted the lady herself setting out the principles which she regarded as the basic ones which comprised her beliefs uh, and therefore Thatcherism, and Norman Lamont also outlined them. I mean, I think essentially it is a combination. It is free market um, economy. It is low tax. It is a belief in the individual um, having as much power to make decisions for themselves rather than the state taking it for them. Um, it is also a belief very strongly in um, patriotism, in the, in, in the rule of law, uh, in the defence of the nation, the sovereign state and parliament. Um, and, and these are in many ways traditional conservative um, principles, 
um, which perhaps the Conservative Party had a little strayed away from um, when um, the Conservative Party had been under bleachship of Ted Heath before her. And she very much felt that the Conservative Party had lost its way. And so it was a reassertion of those kind of fundamental beliefs, uh, which she um, developed along with Keith Joseph at the time. Um, and, uh, and there were various think tanks like the IEA and the Centre for Policy Studies, which also helped to develop them. And I, one of the things that struck me is that, that these days, and maybe it's because she became less flexible later on, uh, and so people think it's a very iron rigid thing that at all, uh, every moment you should be cutting taxes, you should be shrinking the state. Um, uh, and actually, she was much more flexible at that. And at various points, you know, Nigel Lawson, when he was chancellor, did put up some taxes while cutting others. And actually, there, there was a flexibility in it, which is perhaps not always remembered by those who sometimes wave the Thatcherite flag these days. Well, I think it's not as simple as just say, you know, you cut tax at every opportunity. Um, I mean, perhaps one of the definitive moments of the Thatcher government was the 1981 budget, which Geoffrey Howe introduced, um, where in a, at a time when the economy was um, not doing very well, um, it was decided to concentrate on bringing down the deficit. Um, and Geoffrey Howe put up VAT considerably. And you may recall um, that you know the whole of this economics establishment, 364 economists, all wrote a letter to say that this was economic madness. In fact, it laid the foundation for the future growth which we then enjoyed. So, I mean, that was a time where, where certainly fiscal rectitude was very much also a part of it. She didn't like borrowing. Uh, she felt that the nation should get its own house in order in the same way that she did in managing a household budget, um, which some economists hated, but actually it proved to be the correct choice. And when um, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak describe themselves as tax-cutting conservatives and Thatcherites, are they, are they really the heir to Margaret Thatcher? Well, I mean, I think both of them believe in the importance of trying to keep taxes down. Um, however, as Norman Lamont was saying a little earlier, you know, we have just been through an extraordinary crisis in the form of the COVID pandemic, which had led to um, the government having to spend far more than you know, it, I think anybody would have imagined possible in order to keep the economy going. And, and in those kinds of circumstances, I think that was the right decision uh, to take. But also the government is quite right that we now need to try and bring down that overall le level of debt in the economy um, and that that has to be one of the priorities. And the only way you can really do that is by growing the economy um, and you know, at least asking people to make a greater contribution for the time being. Um, we've been talking, obviously, quite a lot about um, other parts of, uh, of how government is and isn't working. As someone who, was, who saw uh, up close um, what happened to Margaret Thatcher at, at the end, can you see any um, uh, um, similarities between what's going on with Boris Johnson right now and what was ultimately Margaret Thatcher's downfall um, and and the concern that there's not enough grip in number 10 today? Well, I mean, I have, I've talked to Boris Johnson directly about this, that, you know, when I was working for Margaret Thatcher, number 10 was a very small team, and it was almost entirely made up of civil servants. So her private office consisted of six people, which were myself and five civil servants. She had a head of communications who was a civil servant. Um, she didn't have a chief of staff, and there was a small policy unit, and that really was it. 
So Downing Street consisted of really quite a small number of people um, who spent a great deal of time with her each day. And now it's sort of ballooned into a vast edifice with um, a huge number of people whose job and responsibilities are not entirely clear. And, and that's something which I think has led to a less efficient government and, you know, I think needs to be addressed. And I, I've, I've told Boris that um, directly. Uh, and what about the, the sort of similarities? Is this the end of days for Boris Johnson? No, I don't think it is. Um, because, you know, part of the problem was that Margaret Thatcher was pursuing policies which were unpopular and which caused um, Conservative MPs to worry about the electoral consequences. And in particular, I'm thinking about the poll tax, the community charge that was called then, which you know was very much associated with her and which a lot of MPs felt would lose them their seats. And that was why I think um, a number of them decided they could no longer support her. I don't think the same pertains today because actually on the big issues um on issues of policy i don't think there is um great division within the conservative party there is profound unhappiness at some the events that have taken place and which have been revealed in sue gray's report um and that obviously is is has caused a lot of um disquiet and, and, and anger indeed in, in the party um, but that's a very different scenario to the one in which whenever there is a significant division over the political direction of the government which I'm afraid had opened up firstly around the community charges I said but also about Europe uh, where you know a number of her most senior ministers simply did not agree with her view about Britain's place in Europe. John Whittell, it's very good to speak to you. Thanks very much. John Whittell's former political secretary to Margaret Thatcher uh, when she uh, was ousted as prime minister. Well, what about today? Where are we on uh, uh, the politics of Thatcherism in 2022? Uh, let's now speak to Annabelle Denham from the Institute of Economic Affairs, a, uh, a think tank on the right, which often argues for uh, cuts in taxes. Hi, Annabelle. Hi, Matt. Good morning. What do you make of it? Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson, are they Thatcherites or are they, as Peter Bone said, socialists? Well, I think they're probably somewhere in between. Certainly, I think that at some point action is going to need to be met with words, which it hasn't been thus far. Now, I mean, one thing I would say is that Thatcher was arguably operating in an easier climate that, than Boris Johnson is. Yes, she was constrained by the oil crisis and the bout of inflation, but Boris Johnson has been severely constrained by a global uh, epidemic. Um, in terms of uh, Thatcher, you know, we have a large number of nationalised industries. And if you were going to get reform, it was only going to go in one direction. We used to talk about having a mixed economy, but that was compared with the Soviet Union. We really did have a very state controlled economy in very obvious ways. Whereas today, we genuinely do have a mixed economy. And it's very easy for the left to blame the market part of it for things that go wrong, energy being a very good current example. And all the regulations that we do have is in many ways much worse than in pre-Thatcher times, but it's a culture, it's a thicket rather than a set of very obvious controls. So the problem we have at the moment is the left are able to blame things on market failure, that there are debates around over-regulation. Um, and so it, it, it's a lot more complex. So I would give Boris some sympathy in, in that respect, but the current drift is a socialist ratchet. And 
a big part of the problem is that Boris Johnson lacks a coherent philosophy. There is no pro-market reformist agenda on any issue. There's no will sense that Boris Johnson is willing to cut parts of the state. Everything is staying still or it's expanding, nor is there any sense that Boris would stick to unpopular decisions, <laughs> that he would make unpopular decisions or stick to them. Would he risk a response like the 364 economists signing a letter to the Times that was mentioned earlier when Times are grim? Is there any sense that he, he would be bold and do what was necessary? Um, and there's, of course, a mountain of things that, that Boris can and should do, uh, reforming the NHS, uh, perhaps introducing some kind of voucher system for education, uh, reintroduce contracting out of pensions, radically simplifying the tax system. Yeah. Um, and importantly, we desperately need land use planning reform, which would produce a lot of resources, it would reduce the welfare bill, it would increase tax revenues because the IEA did polling last year that showed that 67 yeah, percent yeah. of under 40s would prefer to have a socialist economic system and put very simply how can you be a capitalist if you don't have capital so essentially I think the picture is quite mixed um, but if it, it's easy to say oh well this conservative government can't cut taxes because we've had this pandemic and we've spent 400 billion pounds saving lives saving livelihoods but actually there are plenty of uh, reforming things that Boris Johnson could do, that Margaret Thatcher did do, yeah. uh, that would significantly improve our economic outlook. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast this week. You can obviously read all about what we've been discussing online at thetimes.co.uk. Just sign up, get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. And if you want to come on and play our quiz, can you get to number 10? Just email studio at times.radio and throughout February, I'll give you a pair of tickets to my stand-up tour if you come on. That's studio at times.radio. But for now, thank you for listening. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.